Welcome back to Elder Law Issues. This is Robert Fleming of the Tucson, Arizona Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. With me is one of my partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We're going to talk about special needs trust planning, when it's appropriate, when you need to do it. Elizabeth, when we see a client, what questions do we ask to find out if we need to talk about special needs trust planning? Well, some of the general questions that I have for somebody might be whether or not any children, grandchildren, or that person's spouse is receiving any kind of government benefit like SSI, Medicaid, um, different programs that the government will provide assistance. Those really can help dictate to us what kind of special needs trust plan might be appropriate. So when, when somebody has a family member with a disability, does it always follow that we need to do a special needs trust? You know, it doesn't, Robert, but I want to talk pretty broadly about special needs trust today. When I talk to somebody about a family member, uh, somebody who they may want to have receive a benefit from their estate, and that person likes to spend money, has a spendthrift, and may happen to have some kind of diagnosis, could be a mental health diagnosis, um, maybe that person has struggled with drugs or alcohol. When we talk about special needs trust planning, I may not be necessarily just looking at somebody who would identify as being disabled, potentially with a developmental disability. I'm talking more broadly about that beneficiary's ability to manage money and the kinds of assistance that beneficiary may be receiving in the present time. So managing money is the kind of the core ability or disability that that focuses your attention on a trust. I, I agree with you that sometimes we we refer to trusts as special needs trusts too blithely. For one thing, it's confusing when I'm talking to you about planning for your children with your money. To call that a special needs trust confuses the issue because often when you read about special needs trusts, it's what what is set up with your child's money to take care of them after they settle a personal injury lawsuit or something. And so it's very confusing to people to try to, to pull out those two different, very different kinds of trusts. Rather than calling them special needs trusts, maybe we should just call them trusts, an irrevocable trust for the benefit of your son who might be on public benefits or might get on public benefits someday or might now be on public benefits but might lose public benefits but who just can't handle the money, can't be trusted to handle it properly, and, uh, and, and can't be used to maximize his, his quality of life with that money. And when we talk about special needs trusts, oftentimes we're talking to grandparents, and they're considering leaving a portion of their estate to a grandchild who may have an early diagnosis of something like autism, uh, maybe a very high-functioning young person, but the grandparent's really not sure what the kinds of resources are that will be available to the grandchild down the road or what that grandchild's abilities might be. And so a lot of times when we meet with somebody who is um, concerned about making sure that wealth can be transferred to a grandchild who may not yet have a full-fledged diagnosis of um, a developmental disability, um, might be an intellectual disability or some other kind of disability, we like to try and think about those pretty broadly and just keep in mind how flexible a special needs trust can be. One thing I like to do with clients to help them understand 
when and why we're talking about a trust is to just get them to describe their daily life with their child. And, and as you say, it's not always a child. Sometimes it's a grandchild. Sometimes it's a sibling or a spouse, but most often it's a child. Are you doing a lot of help, a, a lot of stuff to support your child? Uh, and, uh, and is that really what allows them to live in the community? If you were to die, realize that there might not be anybody who could do that for you. So what you need to do with your plan is to set up a mechanism for maybe professionals to be hired to replace the services that you're providing. And yes, that's going to be expensive. Uh, and yes, it might be difficult for your child to believe that that's the best use of the money when they've been waiting for a chance to be independent and be able to spend money on their own. But if they get that chance and the money is gone in short order, that means there will not be anyone to replace you or even a part of what you do for them. And when we talk about the opportunity to transfer wealth to a beneficiary who may not be the best money manager, a lot of times we're trying to create terms in the trust that would allow the trustee to have complete discretion over how much money to distribute and when. So that means if we're working with a beneficiary who may have a diagnosis of mental illness and the trustee is working with that beneficiary and the beneficiary is really self-sustaining and, and doesn't need a lot of help from the trust, it doesn't necessarily mean that the trustee won't still make distributions. It really has to do with what facts pertain to the case, what the needs are of that beneficiary, not necessarily trying to create some kind of restrictive terms that will bind the trustee and, and really not be able to allow for the distributions to help the beneficiary. And by the way, this whole idea is why we follow up and ask, so your son has uh, some limitations, some difficulty managing money, or maybe an intellectual disability. Is your daughter totally devoted to his care, or is she annoyed that her childhood was interrupted by her brother's disability or somewhere in between? The reason we're asking is because we're wondering, is she the right person to manage his money? Or do we need to go looking for some more distant family member or a professional or somebody else to, to be the trustee of that trust? That's a really hard question for people um, because they are so used to, so often they're used to doing everything themselves and they haven't really thought out who will do the different pieces of taking care of their child after their death or their disability. It's a hard problem. Uh, and I don't know that we uh, always know the right answer, but we do really feel gratified when we explore it with our clients and, and have a chance to help them figure out what they should be doing with their with their own estate plan. The goal is going to be to make sure that somebody's comfortable with what the terms of the plan say and that they're adaptable enough so that when our client has died, the estate can be administered successfully. Right. That's, we're trying to look forward. We're going to be here dealing with your, your daughter taking care of her brother, uh, and we're going to have to handle some of the fallout. So we want to make sure this looks like a good plan. And by the way, we want you to come back and update us on how the relationships are working every five to seven years, at least, unless something big happens. If your daughter decides to move to Japan, well, maybe we need to talk sooner than that. Um, if your son uh, gets into a program, maybe we need to talk sooner than that. But we want to help counsel you through this 
on a continuing basis for the rest of your life. That's what we do at the law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. And I hope you are persuaded of that listening to my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman and me, Robert Fleming, talk about that on elder law issues. We hope you will join us for another episode uh, coming up. Thanks.